him. And uh, yeah, thank you for all the hard work that went into today. I know people were setting up chairs and lots of work has been put in. I've seen treats at the back. So just thank you to everyone who made this possible. It is good to be together. Um, I'm also thankful for uh, what you were praying about there, Alex. I feel distracted too. <laughs> um, I won't get you to raise your hand, but I would imagine if we were to look across this room, it's November, it's, it's dark and cold, and we don't even have the beauty of snow yet. Uh, it feels like this is the, the worst deal of, of Christmas, of winter. And uh, here we are gathered together, and there's all kinds of things that are scattering around in our brains, and it's very easy to be distracted. I'm mindful of that. Um, but my prayer for us, and I was praying this morning, I'm praying this for myself, I'm praying this for you, is that God would help us to rise above the clatter, the distraction, and that he would grab hold of our hearts with his word today. Um, this is a powerful word. Um, I hope you have your Bible with you. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And as you do that, we're going to find in this story the Apostle Paul ministering in the city of Athens. He's ministering in Athens. You've heard of Athens. This is a, this is a famous city. And what we find in this story is so applicable for our lives today. Of course, all of God's word is applicable, but particularly as he ministers in Athens, what I hope you will see is that we have an awful lot in common with the city of Athens. Now, granted, maybe as you're picturing in your head what Athens is like, granted, it really doesn't have the big temples or the statues. Um, you're not going to see the idols lining the street. Yeah, that's true. But what we find in the city of Athens is that you have uh, people who are... Um, the, the fancy word for this is polytheistic, meaning they, they believe in all kinds of different gods. It, it's pluralistic. Like everybody's got a different view of who God is. And I would argue that that is very, very much like Aurelia today. Now, it's not like Aurelia 30 years ago. It thir Aurelia 30 years ago, if you went out and you poked a stranger on the street, they'd say, out. And you, if you said, hey, well, you know, who, tell me about God. Who do you think he is? The average person on the street would probably describe, whether they believe in him or not, would probably describe the Judeo-Christian God, right? We would have that in common. Whereas today, if you went out and you poked, you poked, let's say, five random people on the street and you said, tell me about who God is, you'd get five very different answers, wouldn't you? We've got a, we've got a generation of kids in our community who have grown up completely unchurched. So they've got no familiarity at all with the Christian God. We've got people who have, who have moved here from the city. People are migrating up north. And so we've got Hinduism and Sikhism and, and Buddhism and Islam. And all of that is represented in our city. People who would, who would see themselves as very spiritual, new age people, they're in our city. And so if you poke five different people and you say, tell me about God, you're going to get five different answers. And so in a way, Aurelia is a lot like Athens. And here in this story, we learn what it looks like to minister in a culture where you have all kinds of different, we'll call them worldviews today, all kinds of different worldviews represented. How do, you, how do you even begin to share the gospel in that group? Uh, previously in the book of Acts, Luke has told us, you know, how you would minister, let's say, to, to Jewish people. We've got examples of his sermons in the synagogues, and, and Luke recorded that so that we would see where to begin speaking to Jewish people. But here, he's recorded this story to teach us where to begin when we speak to people of these various worldviews. And so, as I said, this is very practical, very applicable for us today, and we're going to deal with a, a large chunk of the text. I hope you have your Bible open, open to Acts 17. Um, and normally, we would read through the whole passage, but this morning, we're going to make our way through it, and we're going to pull out the lessons as we go. We're pulling out how to witness to other worldviews. So that's our big lesson. We're going to pull out five lessons from this text. We're going to begin in verse 16. So look now with me to God's word. 
Verse 16, I'll tell you as I studied this week, was the verse that really struck me in my preparation. It says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let's stop right there. The first lesson that we draw from this text is we need to recognize the need. If we're going to witness to other worldviews, this is where we begin. You need to recognize the need. And I'll tell you, as I was preparing and trying it, I cut this point at one point and then I brought it back. I thought this might actually be the most, the most important lesson for us today. Paul is in Athens and he sees a multitude of temples and he sees these idols and these statues. One old historian from that day, uh, Pliny, he said that there were more than 73,000 statues in the city of Athens. So this is, this is wild. And um, someone who's a tourist going to Athens then or now, if you were to go to Athens and see all of that, you might look around and say, well, this is, this is fascinating. Look at the architecture. Look at the culture. Look at the history. This is fascinating. In fact, that's what most people thought when they went to Athens. So much history. It's, it's beautiful. And yet, I want you to notice how, how unimpressed Paul is with the things that impress us. He's not walking around observing and wondering and marveling because Paul's not a tourist. And these idols are not attractions. These idols are, are false gods. And as he looks out at this city, he sees men and women running to and fro into these temples, to these statues, and they're making sacrifices and they're making prayers and they're looking for hope in a place where there is no hope to be found. He's looking at a city full of men and women and boys and girls who were made in the image of God, made to know him and to love him and to worship him and to live with him. And yet rather than giving him the praise that he deserves, they're giving that praise to rocks and stones and they're deceived and so Paul is looking at this city all around him, and the text tells us that his spirit was provoked within him. It broke Paul's heart. And so I, I want to begin here, because I, let me just tell you right now, if we can't follow Paul's example in verse 16, then we won't follow his example in verse 17 onward. In fact, if, if we can't follow his example right here, you got my full permission. You can tune this all right out because there's no program, there's no practice, there's no training that you, you need that's going to enable you to get past this first piece. Does it break your heart? Does it break our hearts, brothers and sisters, when we look out in our city and just like Athens, we see men and women and boys and girls who are looking to, to false hope, to false gods, looking for salvation, looking for, looking for a way home, a way to be right with God. And they're deceived, just like the Athenians. Deceived by false promises, deceived by false prophets. Deceived and on the way to destruction. In the same way that the false gods in Athens had no power to save the Athenians. Neither do the false gods in Aurelia have any power to save Aurelians. Islam cannot save. Buddhism cannot save. Hinduism cannot save. Being a, a good person cannot save. And I know that as I say that, even right now, some of us feel ourselves, our shoulders perking up. We're, we're bristling at that. As Canadians, that, is, that sounds so un-Canadian, right? And we struggle with it, don't we? And yet, as followers of Jesus, we, we have to say that and believe that because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
No one. There's no other way to be right with God except through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Apart from faith in Jesus, men and women in our city are going to die in their sin. And if we don't believe that, if we won't believe that, if we're too Canadian to believe that, if we can look out over Athens or we can look out over Aurelia and and our spirit is not provoked and we find ourselves like tourists just humming and hawing and tell me more about this. If that's us, then we will never open our mouths to share the gospel. We won't. We won't. We will live our lives accumulating as much money and as much comfort as we can and then we will we will die and the people around us will perish in their sin and we won't care. And that's a heavy note to begin with. But I'll tell you, it's, it's the truth, isn't it? Maybe for some of us, maybe you need to tune out the rest. Maybe you need to spend the next 30 minutes just praying about this. God, I don't believe this anymore. And I need to see it again. I need to see this afresh. There's a reason why I'm not reaching out to my neighbors with the gospel. And the reason is this. Is that I've, I've stopped believing and I've stopped feeling. I've stopped loving the way that Jesus loved. My heart is not stirred within me. Look at the text. Paul's was. And as he waited in Athens, he's, he's brokenhearted. And that leads him to then speak, which is our second lesson. Start the conversation. If you want to witness to these different worldviews, then you need to start the conversation. Paul sees the brokenness, but I want you to notice that he doesn't now find a quiet room where he can wallow and, and be all upset about how broken and messy the world is. That's, sometimes that's what we do, isn't it? Or take to, take to the internet and just rant about how broken the world is. No, that Paul's not doing that. He sees the brokenness, it breaks his heart, and so then he gets to work. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Every day. Can I tell you, as I wrote this sermon, I felt, I felt so convicted. So I'm preaching to myself here. I felt so convicted as I, I wrestled through this. Every day he went out and he told everybody that would listen to him about the hope that he had. I'll tell you, if we want to see the city of Aurelia transformed, then we need to make evangelism a daily habit. We need to make it a daily habit. And I would say as North American Christians, we really struggle with this. We, we are really not following the New Testament example. Remember Jesus, when he talked about evangelism, he uses the analogy of throwing seeds. Remember that? And so Jesus said, it's like a, it's like a sower throwing seeds and you just, you're just throwing them out. And some of them are landing in rocks and birds are eating them. And some of them are landing in tough soil and they don't go deep. And some are landing amongst the weeds and they get choked out. But some land in good soil and they grow. But the sower doesn't know. He's just throwing. He's just throwing out the seed. And that's what we see Paul doing day after day. He's, he, it's the synagogue and he's doing this. And then he goes out into the streets and he's doing this. And people marketplace and they bring him to the Mars Hill. And he starts doing some of this. And this is Paul's life. And, and isn't it true that this is not something that most of us do? As North American Christians, we do this. We can reach in and pick up one. Then we spend a whole year. I need train. Somebody train me. How do I train me on the gospel? Train me in apologetics. I got to be able to answer every single question. And then we pick one neighbor. And then we, for an entire year, we pray like, Lord, give me the courage with this neighbor. Give me an opportunity. And maybe I'll bring them cookies. And we bring them cookies. And then a month later, we're like, I'll muster up the courage. I'll bring them two cookies. And you bring them two cookies. And, and then by the end of the year, you've got an invitation. And you, you invite them to church. And you're like, ah, I've done it. I've evangelized. And... And I'm, I'm teasing myself here, because isn't this what we do? 
and, and we're just like one at a time. If I, if I can have one conversation a year, then that feels like an enormous win. And listen, we all have to start somewhere. It's true. But as we read the story, and the further we get, you're going to see the need for throwing the seed everywhere. Just throw it everywhere, every day. The people that God puts in our lives, they need to know. We need to start the conversation. And you say, well, what is the conversation? Well, we see that in verse 18. He was preaching what? Jesus and the resurrection. There's a sweet simplicity there, isn't it? He goes into this place filled with all these intellectuals, and he preaches Jesus. He said, I got to tell you about Jesus. You can, can I tell you, Christian, you who have been a Christian for a week, a month, 30 years, you can do this. You can talk to people about Jesus, and you can tell them about Jesus and the resurrection. Just tell them about the hope that we have, what Christ has done so that we can live and not die. So here's a really practical, this is, you know, maybe you're wondering, well, I don't know, how am I doing? Here's a question. Think about the neighbors that are on your street, the people who God has put in your circle. You might be the only Christian on that street, so let me just ask you a question. Do those neighbors know about Jesus? Do they know that God sent his son, Jesus, to bear our sin and to die on the cross in our place? And that if we put our trust in Jesus, we will live and not die. That there is resurrection hope that is available for us, and it's been purchased by Christ, and it's free, and it's right there. Do your, do your neighbors know this? I'll tell you, all of Paul's neighbors knew this. Paul's neighbors' neighbors knew this. I think everybody in the city of Athens knew this by the time Paul was done, because every day he's telling anybody who will listen. If you've ever met somebody like this, it's contagious, right? Someone that's just like, I've got to tell the world. Now listen, that doesn't mean that every one of Paul's neighbors believed this. Well, they thought he was crazy. They did. If you look at the beginning of verse 18, it says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So he starts the conversation and they're like, all right, we're in. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler was a, obviously a derogatory term. Um, and if you look back at the roots of it in, in Athens, what this meant was it was like uh, a reference to a bird that picks up seeds like in various places. And what they were essentially saying was like, you're an anti-intellectual, Paul. You're picking up an idea here, an idea here, an idea here, and you're bringing together this, this unintelligent mess of a philosophy. And of course, in Athens, these folks prided themselves on being really, really smart people. Another thing that we have in common with Athens. We're, we're the people in the world who have it figured out. Not like those barbarians out there. Not like those people who are stuck in the Middle Ages out there. No, like, we've got it. We're smart. We use our brains. Uh, and so in Athens, they're like, you know, Socrates debated in these streets, Paul. And so they make fun of him. You're a babbler. You, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a third-rate intellectual. And if you think about it, it's not all that different from what people say to our high school students in their high schools. Or in their universities, our young people have probably gotten a little bit of that. It's like, how could you actually believe this nonsense? That's what they're saying to Paul. And it's not surprising that they reacted to Paul the same way people react to us in our context, because the thoughts that shaped their culture were very similar to the thoughts that shape ours. Paul mentions here, the, or Luke mentions the Epicureans and the Stoics. So the Epicureans, you could sum them up, these are the pleasure people. Uh, one commentator writes, for, of the Epicureans, pleasure was the chief goal of life, with the pleasure most worth enjoying being a life of tranquility, free from pain, disturbing passions, superstitious fears, and anxiety about death. 
So the Epicureans, their way of thinking was find the path of least resistance, find the most comfort and and avoid all of the stuff that's going to create anxiety in your life. Just avoid all that mess and find a way to live a pleasurable life. And that's what it's all about. Have you met anybody like that? Quite a few of our neighbors, right? That's, that shapes their life. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the Stoics. And the Stoics were shaped by reason. One commentator writes, they stress the importance of reason as the principle which was inherent in the structuring of the universe and by which men ought to live. Their ethics stressed individual self-sufficiency and obedience to the dictates of duty. So on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the Stoics. And for them, they're like, listen, it's about logic. It's about reason. It's about living a good life. And a good life means being a good person and being a good member of society. And that's what it's all about. And I imagine you've probably met some people like that too, right? That's every neighbor that wasn't in the first camp. If you could summarize it this way, you've got Athens dominated by the pleasure seekers and the virtue signalers. Which just reminds me that there's nothing new under the sun, right? So these are the ideas that are swimming around in the city. And Paul comes out and he says, I preach Jesus and the resurrection. And they say, you're a babbler. You're, you're a non-intellectual. You're ridiculous. And that was the reception he received. And it's the reception that we will likely receive in this city. And yet day after day, Paul went for it again and again, even as they dismissed him. And eventually we read in verse 19, I'm going to read verse 19 to 21. It says, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they bring him to the Oropagus or Mars Hill, which is where ideas were tested and tried. And essentially what I need you to see here is that Paul had effectively started the conversation, right? Mission accomplished. Finally, they're like, all right, Paul, let's let her rip. You got our attention. Let's hear it. And so I want to bring you now to uh, the third lesson. Now that you've started the conversation, what do we do next, right? Lesson three, find common ground. Find common ground. Just listen to the masterful way that Paul handles this group. We read in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That's interesting. That, that sounds really kind, doesn't it? Remember, these folks just called him a babbler. These folks just said, you're an anti-intellectual. And Paul stands up and he says, I can see that in every way you're religious. It would have been so easy for Paul. Now, Paul at this time was arguably the smartest man in the Mediterranean world. Right. Paul is Paul is no joke. And Paul in this moment could have intellectually destroyed these people. You know, if, if YouTube existed, I don't know if you've seen the clips where you, you get in the debate and then you throw out a one liner and then they pause the video and the sunglasses drop down over the, the thug life. Dun, dun, dun. Maybe I'm the only one who's seen those. <laughs> well, let's go home. No, that, people are going. People are living for that today. Right. You, you can you can just slam them, Paul. You are so much smarter than these guys. They don't even see the inconsistencies in the life they're living. You could just and, and instead he stands up and he says, I see in, in every way you're very religious people. And there's a kindness there. 
isn't it? Because Paul's not trying to win the argument and make a YouTube clip. He's trying to win the city. He's trying to win worshipers of Jesus. And so he comes in with unapologetic truth. He's going he's gonna to bring the truth, but that truth is, is brought together with this marked kindness. And oh, that we would see more of that in our public discourse today. When we engage with the world, we should be unapologetic with the truth, but let's, let it be marked with this kind of kindness. Now, in verse 23, he, he jumped, I'm going to jump ahead now to verse 23. He says, For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So this is fascinating. So as Paul was making his way evangelizing in the city of Athens, he's got his eyes open for opportunities to, to speak in a language that they can understand. And as he's ministering in the city, he, one day he kept, sees this altar to the unknown God. And you can imagine him just tucking it away. Like, I'm going to need that. I'm going I'm to hang on to that. And so here, as he's in this moment, he says, I've, I've got a chance now to speak your language. G. Campbell Morgan's a famous old preacher, and he tells us, from every system of false religion, there is an open door into the true. From every system of false religion, there's an open door into the true. I want you to hear that. All truth is God's truth, which means that as we engage with whoever, whether your neighbor is, is a secular humanist or, or Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or wouldn't put themselves in any kind of category, but they're building their life around something, within every system, there is a nugget of truth. And we should be the people who find it. We should have eyes open to find it. If you skip ahead to verse 28, it says, Paul is now, he's quoting from their uh, poets. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, the Athenians were wrong about a lot of things, most things, right? But, but Paul, before he got there, he wanted to highlight and commend some of the things that they had right. And so he pulls out this line. Your poet wrote, in him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul pauses and he says, yes and amen. We can't do anything apart from God. You're right. We live in him. We, we can't draw a breath without him. And then he goes on to quote another poet, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul says, amen. That's right. We are, we're the children of God created in his image. You've got that right. Amen. And from there, from this common ground, now Paul is going to jump into some challenges and he's going to shape the, their, the things that they're thinking about. But he begins here. And I just think it's a really important lesson for us. So here's your challenge. If you want to put this into practice, as we go out into the world as Christians, I'll tell you, it is really easy for us to identify everything that's wrong. Criticizing people is the easiest thing in the world. Um, and criticizing a culture is too. So we can all identify 1,000 things in our culture that just aren't the way that they should be, right? But that's probably not going to be the best open door in talking to your neighbor. Can I challenge you instead to do the hard work of finding some things that are commendable? Find some common ground. I'll tell you, I've got neighbors who are very hard workers, and that's commendable. And I'll try to commend them on that whenever I can. I've got a neighbor who is always serving others and doing really kind things for the other neighbors. I, that's common ground. I can commend that. I've got family members who are really passionate about justice. I can commend that. Really passionate about human rights. I can meet them there on that place. I can, I can point at that and say, this is truth. 
And there, from that place, we can now move forward, which is what we see in the fourth lesson. So after you find common ground, the fourth lesson is you need to establish a foundation. Now, this is very, this is very critical for us as we think about ministering in a multicultural context like this, where there's all kinds of worldviews represented. Remember, Paul, is, he's speaking to people who believe in, in polytheism. So they're, they're believing in all kinds of gods. And if Paul were just to come out and say, well, Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin to God, then I imagine most of Paul's listeners would be nodding along and saying, okay, here's another story about another God and another sacrifice. Got it. You know, no problem. Keep doing your thing, Paul. And so, no, Paul realizes I'm going to need to actually... I'm going to need to clear out the ground here and we need to begin at the very beginning. Because when I say God, the people that are listening to me are not on the same page, right? When we say God, we're thinking about entirely different things. What people believe about God is very important. What people believe about God is very important. Obedience, for example, doesn't make sense if we don't believe that God is the creator and sustainer of the world. Sin as a category, doesn't make sense if we don't believe that God is holy, holy, holy. The cross doesn't make sense if we don't believe that God is just and righteous. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's exactly right. And so as we go out into the world and we talk to our neighbors about, about the gospel, we're going to need to find some common ground and then we're going to need to work on this foundation. We need to establish a foundation. Who is God? When I say God, uh, you need to know who I'm talking about because it might not be who you're thinking about. And so let's just work through this sermon and see what Paul says. Look at verse 24. He tells them this. Remember, they know nothing about God here. He's laying the foundation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So that's where Paul begins. Remember, they know nothing. So he's like, okay, well, let's, let's just start here. And I think we got a list up on the screen. First, he says, God is creator. He says, you need to know that, that there is a God who made you. He made everything. And then he goes on to say, God is Lord of heaven and earth. So because he made everything, he is Lord of everything. Now he's in Athens. And so they're worshiping God of the sea, God of love, God of war. And, and Paul says, Hey, this God, this remember the altar to the unknown God, this God that you recognize is there, but you don't know him. Let me tell you who he is. He made everything and he's Lord of everything. He's not Lord over this category or that he's Lord of all. And then he proceeds to say, he's not contained in temples. So he looks out across the city and all these different temples to all these different gods. And he says, listen, the God who made the universe does not fit in your temple. He's, he's transcendent. He's, he's bigger than all of this. It's a whole different category. It's a whole different level from what you're thinking about when you think about God. Now he proceeds in verse 25 to say, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So here Paul explains that God is self-sufficient. So if you're keeping notes, you can just be writing out a little list here of what he's working through. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need you. So as he's looking out over the city, and people are, are offering up these sacrifices and offerings to their gods, trying to, trying to obtain safe passage when they go back on the boat, trying to obtain good crops for this next harvest, as they've got their mythology that talks about the gods needing people. 
being entertained by the people. Paul says this is not who God is. He doesn't need us at all. The theological term for this, if you're a bit nerdy, is the aseity of God. And this is actually wildly important. The fact that God doesn't need us. Because you might ask, well, why did God make us? Why did God make us? Was, did he need us to worship him? No. Did he need us to offer sacrifices? No. Well, what, why on earth did God make us? God, God is... Yeah. Yes, he made us to enjoy him. So God is, God is so self-sufficient that he is overflowing with love. He made us to enjoy that relationship, to enjoy him. Because fundamentally, and if you want it simple, here it is. Fundamentally, God, our God is a giver, not a taker. So that's what he's like. You need to know that he's an overflower, right? Not, not a withdrawer, a giver, not a taker. And then he proceeds to say in verse 24, nope, 26 to 27, he, he goes on to say, and he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. So here Paul teaches his listeners that God is not localized and God is not hiding. What do I mean when I say God is not localized? Actually, I would argue for some of you in this room, you're a Christian, but you need to hear this. God is not localized. He's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of, of Jerusalem. He's not just in modern terms. He's not just the God of North Americans. He's God of the world. He, he created Adam created one man and from that one man came all the nations. And before we ever drew our lines on the geopolitical maps, he is our God. He's the God of all the nations. And sometimes I think we, we wrestle with that. We're like, well, I don't want to impose. I mean, I, you, you live in a different place, a different culture. He is God of all people, even those people who have forgotten him. And he's not hiding from us. He is there to be found. Paul, when he's later writing to the believers in Rome, he says this in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, them being humanity. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where? Where has God been clearly perceived? In the things that have been made. In, in all of creation, in the sunrise, the sunset, the mountains, the, the, the little baby in your arms, God has been revealing himself to the world. And then Paul finishes, so they are without excuse. Because all people know that there is a God. Now they suppress this truth. They try, to, they try to keep themselves from seeing this. Romans 1 goes on to say that. But internally, we know this. And that's why when you look at all the continents, you look at, you find people groups that we didn't know where they were and you find them and they, they've got an idea of the divine. G. Campbell Morgan says, every idol proved capacity for God. Every idol proves capacity for God. We know he's there. And not only is he there, he speaks. He speaks to us in the opening verses of Hebrews it's as long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, how does he speak to us? He's spoken through his son. All right, God speaks. He sent his son into the world. To, he is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, we see God. He has spoken into the world. The word made flesh came and he dwelt among us. 
came into the darkness, right? To shine bright. And then Jesus ascends to the Father, and what's he do? He sends the Holy Spirit into his people. And Jesus tells us, you are my witnesses, right? God speaks. He is speaking to the world. He's not hiding. He's not hiding. God declares, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So here, remember, Paul, you can almost call this pre-evangelism. Paul hasn't said anything yet about Jesus to these listeners. Because again, he's laying down the foundation. They're thinking of like a thousand different gods. And he's, let me just tell you who we're talking about. And we're going to need to know how to do this as we go into, the, into our city. So here's the application for this point. Just think about when you talk to your neighbors, when you talk to people on your street. An important question for you to ask is, who do you think God is? That's a, and you know what? I'd say that's also a disarming question. Just ask people. Tell me about him. Who do, you, who do you think God is? Who comes into your mind when you think about God? And then, Christian, you need to be able to, to tell them who God is. So you, you need to know this, right? Who is our God? Explain that. Begin there. 23, 23. That's very specific. 20, 30 years ago, you could assume that the people you talk to on the streets of Aurelia would be picturing the same God in their mind that you're picturing when you talk. Not anymore. So we gotta, we've got to come back to the basics and do this foundational work. And it brings us to our fifth and final lesson, okay? Last one. We learn from Paul's example that you need to tell the truth. You need to tell the truth. Look at verses 28 to 31. It says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Well, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul began on common ground, but you need to notice Paul didn't end on common ground, did he? Well, he comes in with a press here. Well, it's important for us to look for things that we can affirm in the culture and that we can affirm in the various worldviews around us. We also need to resolve to tell the truth. And the truth that the Athenians needed to hear was a difficult truth. Paul tells them, and this is a, a real pivot from what he's been doing. Paul tells them that the days of worshiping idols were days of ignorance. That's hard. That's a hard word, isn't it? Those were days of ignorance. And then he's, remember, he just quoted from one of their poets who said, in him we, uh, we are indeed his offspring. And Paul essentially turns the corner and he says to them, listen, you know this. Like, you know, these things are true. You just said that, that we are his offspring. And yet here you are. If, if you were made by God, then why are you worshiping things that you have made? You know, that's not God. Cause you just said there that God made you and you're worshiping a thing that you made. You've got it. You got it backwards. You guys called me a babbler. This, this is evidence of your ignorance. Paul says you've missed it. And not only have you missed it, but the day is coming when you're going to stand before the God who made you, and it's not that rock, and you're going to be judged. Therefore, you need to repent. That's a sharp turn in the conversation, right? The things that we've talked about thus far, those are the easy parts. 
of witnessing to, to these different worldviews. The easy parts are finding common ground and, and commending things and getting in that same place. But here, this is the hardest part, and I, I won't lie to you, it is. It feels unkind to call people to repentance. It feels unkind to look people in the eye and to tell them that their false gods are no gods at all. It feels terribly unkind. But Christian, if the gospel is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he did what he said he's done, then it is the kindest thing in the world for you to look people in the eyes and to tell them the truth. That's what kindness is. In fact, it's unkind for you to try to, to protect your relationship or protect their vision of you and to withhold from them this truth that will save their eternal souls. Which brings us back to where we began. Paul looked around him and he saw these, these happy women, men and women running around their city, offering sacrifices in these various temples. He saw them worshiping false gods and it provoked his spirit. And the reason it provoked his spirit is because Paul believed the gospel. Deep down in his heart, he actually believed what God has said. He believed that there is one God who is holy and just and righteous, who made all of us in his image, and that we're one day going to stand before that God in judgment. Paul believed that all people are born into sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are holy, therefore we have a problem, because the wages of sin is death. Paul believed that everybody in that city had a problem, a problem that separated them from the God who made them, the same problem that Paul had. But Paul believed that God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish, but would have everlasting life because Jesus died on the cross, bearing the guilt and the shame of all of our sins. And if we will repent and believe and put our trust in Jesus, then our sin is removed from us and we will live forever with him. Paul believed that because Jesus rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. Paul believed that that resurrection life is ours because Jesus proved it in his resurrection. And as Paul walked into this city, he couldn't turn a blind eye to all of this deception that was promising hope, but it was never going to deliver. He couldn't look at all these people who were deceived and say, oh, I'm, I'm just too nice to talk to them about this. No, no, Paul was compelled. He was grieved in his spirit and he spoke. And the text concludes, and this is where we come to a conclusion. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, this is the sad reality, some mocked. Paul lays his heart on the line. He's like, I got to tell you this. Some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul puts himself in this terribly uncomfortable place, and he lays it all on the line, and he tells them the truth. After doing all the hard work of finding common ground, laying a foundation, he goes for it. And the crowd, by and large, mocks him and rejects him. But some, but some believed after days and days of ministering in the synagogues and ministering in the streets and throwing the seed everywhere. I mean, think of how big Athens was. It is, it's no uh, stretch to say that Paul shared the gospel with thousands and thousands of people. And yet we, we only hear the names of two, two people, two believers. And sometimes in our witnessing to the world, that's the math. We'll throw thousands of seeds 
and we'll see two sprout up. Which is why, as I mentioned earlier, we need to get past this thing of, of throwing one a year. We just got to throw it out there. Right? You just throw it out there. Thousands and thousands to believe. And Paul, Paul is happy with the math. He was ready and willing to be mocked and rejected by thousands in order to win a few. That is Christian love. That's what it looks like to witness to the worldviews that we see here in our city. And if we want to be used by God to witness to the people around us, then we need to possess, really possess this kind of love. And I'll tell you, you can't actually manufacture this kind of love. You can't guilt it up in yourself or you can't work it up in yourself. It's a spiritual gift from God. And so to that end, if you want this kind of love, then I want to just invite you to pray with me now as we conclude. Heavenly Father, we love you. and God, we're thankful for the mercy that you have shown us. Lord, we've been singing about it all morning. God, and it's one thing to stand here in this beautiful building, Lord, and to sing with our brothers and sisters and just to hear the voices around us, Lord, and to, to celebrate the love that we have received through Christ. But Lord, it's another thing for us to now go out into the world and to be so changed by that love that we want to invite others into it. Um, God, you're, you're the giver, not the taker. Lord, and, and you've made us in your image, so we want to be givers. We want to be able to go out and to be less concerned about what people think about us and to be less concerned about how comfortable our lives is, are and to be more concerned, Lord, with the souls of the people around us, Lord, and the worship that you deserve. So help us. And God, I, I ask you to help us earnestly because we just can't do it. We can't do it in our own strength. Lord, there's, no, there's nothing. We can't go home and try and make ourselves feel bad about this so that we'll do better. That None of that works. Guilt, shame doesn't work. What we need is to be transformed by the power of your spirit in us. So we ask for that, God. Fill us up with the love of God in Christ. That we would overflow. God, that we would start the conversation. That we would reach out in love to the people around us. And that we would see them the way that you see them, Lord. Men and women, boys and girls made in your image. Men and women and boys and girls who are being called home through Christ. Lord, and how will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how will someone preach unless they are sent? So God, I just pray, would you send us today? And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?